Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So Jesus' most well-known and powerful message teachings are found in, in Matthew 5 through 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we started off with the intro, which is him giving his main points. We call them the Beatitudes. So imagine Jesus for a moment sitting on this mount and talking to the crowds and listening. And, and, and then what he shares next after these Beatitudes quickly gets to this idea of what the meaning and significance of Jesus' command to love your neighbor is. Now, even as I say that, some people are going to go, another message on love your neighbor, uh, you may want to tune out, but I want to encourage you to not do that, to stay engaged, to move past that, to re-engage with what Jesus is trying to teach us. Because Jesus' definition of neighbor means that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, are committed to learning to love our enemies. The people we despise and the people who despise us. It was a shocking, controversial teaching when Jesus gave it in his day, and maybe even more so in our culture today with all the political and social divides going on. This is one of the most counterintuitive things that Jesus asks his followers to do. It's a difficult teaching both to hear and understand what it means for you and me. Well, good morning. Um, This feels like when we were quarantining, we did a lot more of this together, so it feels good to be back. But God is wanting us to see in these words, it's much more than a rule than how we follow him. He wants us to have a brand new way of seeing all people, including the ones that we don't like. So in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites us to live under his rule and his value system. And it's not just a way of modifying our behavior, but it helps us to see some of our deep root issues in our hearts and minds that determine like how we live. And when we don't get those core values of Jesus in our hearts, we're going to be much more likely to sabotage and destroy our relationships. This point is so critical because the highest value in the kingdom of God is loving, healthy relationships with God and others. Which is exactly why we paint on the lobby wall relationships are the mission. I mean, loving like Jesus, being in relationship like the kingdom of God commands us to be is absolutely central to having a ritual faith. You can't be a true follower of Jesus without it. And you certainly will will never have a compelling church experience without it. What Jesus is doing here is he's exposing anything that threatens healthy, loving relationships. He he wants for us to not avoid, but rather move toward those things that threaten relationships and deal with it. As you well know, that's not easy. It's uncomfortable. Jesus is actually saying, love people you hate. Love people you can't stand and people who can't stand you. Now, the power of these specific words, Jesus says, actually, when we were talking about it, it reminded us of, of Mount St. Helens, just kind of in a, a physical illustration for us in Washington. How many of you remember in 1980 when Mount St. Helens erupted, causing the deadliest and most economically devastating volcanic event in U.S. history? Is anybody that? Oh, yeah, okay, some, thank of, you. some of us here remember okay. that. The, the mountain um, summit went from 9677 feet to 8365 feet. 1,300 feet of mountain was completely gone, leaving an even greater depth of one mile, a one-mile deep crater even below that in a matter of seconds. The debris was in excess of seven cubic miles in volume. Ash fell from the sky in a measurable way all the way to Oklahoma, a 24-hour drive away. 
So when we're living in Oregon, we as a family visited, and we, you take this really long road. It looks like it's going to be a short road off of I-5, but it's a really long road to get to the top. You go to the visitor centers, and, and, and the, the feature of it is just, just this amazing video documentary of what the mountain looked like before, along with kind of a record of all the days leading up to the eruption. And no one anticipated such a big eruption to happen, which is why a guy named David Johnston, a geologist, stood ready to record the volcano's activity. So as the presentation ends, you actually hear Johnston's last words, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. Anybody remember those words? The room rumbles and shakes in the sound of an exploding mountain, and then it goes complete quiet and pitch black. And the screen rolls up, and the room blackening drapes open, and there you see Mount St. Helens as it is today. It, it was this take-your-breath-away moment. The raw power of a volcanic explosion that was small in comparison to many in history. Yet in seconds, Johnston was dead from the blast debris exploding down and across a five-mile-wide valley and rolling up over the top of a 1,300-foot ridge where he thought he was safely perched to view this event, hurling 1,000-pound boulders over this 1,300-foot ridge and accompanied by 500-degree heat. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, you were just left with this sense of an absolute awe-inspiring, terrifying power. I mean, trees that were multiple times thicker than telephone poles were snapped like twigs. And I mean, as you're driving up there, you see this flattened blast of 13 miles out of these trees down. And in that moment when we were looking, the power and the holiness of God, just that the one that created the universe and who holds it all together felt a tiny bit more real. And then you're hit with the thought like, well, the same God who's so big wants you and I to be a part of his world, to be in a relationship with him. I mean, it's mind-boggling. And yet we know the story, right? As humans, we've messed that up, that relationship. And, but God then had this rescue plan to make a way for us to have a close relationship with him, this big, holy, awe-inspiring, perfect God. And why? Because he loved that much. And so in this passage, we see Jesus, who's now on a mount of his own, speaking these words for all who want to follow him, that there is a, a, a greater, a far more explosive message that he's given that has an impact on our world that's bigger than anything else, um, much bigger than whatever Mount St. Helens was. Because no one had ever said anything quite like this before and actually lived it out like Jesus did. And so these words that Jesus shares, they have the power to completely transform us, our community, our nation, and our world. You know, for centuries, Christians and non-Christians, they turned to Jesus' teachings here, and they looked to him as like a, a moral ethic, like a guide for how we should do, is this the right thing or not to do. But boy, these teachings are so much more than that. This Sermon on the Mount, it can be read in about five minutes. And it, but, and it shows us a picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like and it, what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes near. So especially in this verse, we can know that when we love our enemy, when we pray for those who, who persecute us, heaven invades earth. So let's read these verses, which again, the impact of these in history is just a far greater explosive reorienting of the landscape than you'd ever see from something like Mount St. Helens. Matthew 5, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse from the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let's unpack this. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament where the Israelites were entitled by law to fair recompense if somebody wrongs you. And then Jesus shares a situation that was common in their day if you were out relaxing with your friends and your family at the lake and a troop of Roman soldiers walked by with swords and demand, get my bag and carried over that hill. And if not, you're, I can kill you, you're dead. They actually had the legal right and authority to do that in that day. As a follower of Jesus, what would you do? Well, Jesus is saying, you pick up his bag and you carry it, not just the one mile required by law, but you carry it two miles above and beyond. Mm -hmm. See, some misunderstand this and say, Jesus is telling us to be doormats. Just don't do anything, be passive, let people walk all over you and do nothing. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is asking us to live as people who take the initiative in love which means we don't back off and hide. Instead, we see the soldier, our enemy, as someone we are called by God to love. We seek to find compassion for them and what they need. To the Roman soldier, therefore, you ask, well, can I carry this for you? And can I carry it even further for you so your burden is lighter? See, as followers of Jesus, he's telling us, don't retaliate, don't seek revenge, don't be passive either. Be very intentional to love those who hate you. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I struggle with having enough intentionality to love my family all the time. And Jesus is asking us to do it for our enemy. So let's dig a little bit deeper into what Jesus is wanting us to know, the more of the why and the how to live this way. So Jesus says, you have heard blank numerous times in his Sermon on the Mount. And when he does, he's referring to the law in the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said blank, but I say this. Well, it sounds like he might be contradicting the law, but that's not true because right before this, he said he came to fulfill the law perfectly. Jesus is just simply showing his listeners how, te- how his teaching deepens our understanding of what the law means. So Jesus said in the verses just above, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And he's referring back to Exodus 20. And Jesus follows that up with, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus also says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which refers to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus then shares, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
Now, Jesus is referring here to um, Leviticus 19.18, where it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So basically, it seems like Leviticus is saying, well, you don't, you don't take revenge on people among your own group, right? But outside of them, it's okay, right? No, I mean, that's not a correct understanding. But that, for centuries, Jews would argue over that interpretation. And that's why Jesus is clearly identifying what the meaning is. When, he, when Jesus quotes from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, there's something that he's adding that Leviticus doesn't specifically say, and hate your enemy. But that is how the Jews had applied it. What Jesus is getting at here is that you can search all of the Bible, and you will never find a commandment or a law that says hate your enemy. You find stories of many people who did hate their enemy. You read psalms of people processing their anger and hatred toward their enemies with God. But never does God say that you can hate. And Jesus is trying to help them see in, um, how this verse in Leviticus has been horribly misunderstood. So the command from the law was, love your neighbor as yourself. The question was, who is your neighbor? And Jesus is saying, we are to love our enemies, thereby meaning our neighbor, including the Roman soldier. So how can Jesus say this? I mean, if we look back at the context of Leviticus 19, it says, in the context, it says, don't show partiality to the poor or the rich. Don't slander another person. Don't do anything that endangers uh, the life of another person. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against, against uh, one of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So who's your neighbor? And it sounds like in this context, you could argue that it's the fellow Israelites. And there is that sense that he's talking about them. Yet, who's talking here? So God is on Mount Sinai talking to the Israelites about how to live together. So, so right here, again, it looks a little bit like maybe the Roman soldiers or tax collectors would not be considered neighbors, so you, you know, they're off the hook. You don't have to love them. However, if we look at the context of this law a few verses later after this, God is telling them, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall, do, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And that I am the Lord your God is like God saying, hey, this is set, this is done. No argument, this is the command. If you want to follow me, this is it. There were immigrants who were looking for work in that day in the safe haven, and God tells Israel to be that safe haven to them, to love them as yourself, to let them be a part of your tribe. Now, now hear me clearly, because you might misunderstand me in our political environment today. This verse is not to be used to describe an entire immigration policy. It doesn't take into account all of Scripture. The point of this is what? It is when there is somebody who is an immigrant, who is different than you, living in your land... Our command is you treat them well like family, like one of your own. The conflict on what to do with a Roman soldier remains, although if you want to keep that argument going, he's not because he's not an immigrant. Therefore, you wouldn't have to love that guy who breaks kneecaps and brings oppression and raises your taxes. But Jesus actually takes this message of love your neighbor and expands beyond what the Jews would have ever thought in that time. Jesus says, loving your neighbor expands outside of your own people, even to your oppressors. God is asking them to love with absolutely no boundaries on that love. 
Jesus is instructing everyone in these crowds, they had been under vicious oppression for hundreds of years, to love not only their own friends, but their enemies, all those that they have hated, all those that have oppressed them. I mean, to love the people I, I hate and who hate me. Wow. So within this command, Jesus gives us some insight on how he knows that true love has no boundaries. In that scripture, Jesus is talking, he says, God has the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rains to the, rain to the just and the unjust. He is speaking about God's character. Everywhere that Jesus has walked, he would see God's compassion, not only on those who knew God, but for those that didn't. Dallas Willard describes this view as God-saturated. You know, it's where we see that every breath, every meal, every raindrop, every friendship, every smile and laugh is a gift from our Creator God. And Jesus draws this conclusion about God's character, that he is incredibly generous to all people, not just his own. So Jesus is saying that if this is what God is like, then this is what the kingdom looks like too. Not only do we see God's character in nature, Jesus was deeply shaped by the scripture. The Psalms talk regularly about God as gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. God loved those who hate him. We see Jesus reflect the character of God in his generosity to those who were poor and outcast. To all of us who hated him, Jesus went and eat with those people, right? The people who the religious leaders said don't hang around them. Jesus ate with those people. He went specifically to them and invited them to be a part of his kingdom. And he wanted those who follow him to live the same way. So one of the main difficulties in this passage surrounds the word love. You know, love can mean so many things in English, can it? You know, Ross absolutely loves ice cream mm-hmm. and olives. Now, hopefully he doesn't put them together, but I wouldn't put it past you I at might. all. I might. Um, but love here refers to something that you prefer or appreciate, right? Ross also loves his family, and that love goes much deeper. It's more of a loyal and a, a caring But because love in our English language refers more to like our feelings and emotions that happen to us, we can miss what Jesus is saying here. Because, you know, is Jesus really asking us to have these loving, warm, fuzzy feelings for a Roman soldier who just demanded that you carry his bag and has treated you like trash? No. I mean, Jesus is talking about a way of thinking and acting that chooses to love regardless of what our feelings and our emotions are saying in that moment. God shows in this way of thinking and action that he is coming to earth as Jesus in that way. That's how Jesus came, offering grace and generosity toward people regardless of how they behave. To Jesus, it didn't matter if a person believed in him or even if they liked him in order for him to love them. What Jesus is asking us to do is actually to see our enemy differently. To see them as God sees them, as someone he loves, created in God's image. They, they may be really messed up, but they're still someone God considered worthy of giving his attention to. God chose to come among us in the person Jesus. He chose to love us when we were his enemies. As followers of Jesus, I don't have a right to treat someone as unloved when Jesus treated that same person as loved. What helps me is it's imagining like Jesus goes around and puts a price tag on each person. And God is the one that determines what that price is and that value. We don't get to choose what price is on every person. We don't get to write somebody off because of the value that God puts on them. And that's where it gets gritty, right? Jesus said that even those slimy, cheating tax collectors, those deceptive government leaders, they are your neighbor and we're to love, love them. 
those people that are getting in the way of my job, of job promotion, those people that annoy and offend you, you cannot belittle them because Jesus put such a high value and a high price tag on them. And it's not like that we have to have these great feelings or thoughts toward them. I mean, some of them I might say, like, Lord, I, I really can't stand this person, but I know they're made in your image. Jesus, I know you gave your life for them. God, help me to choose to think and act like you do. Help me to hang the same price tag on them as you do. Jesus challenges in verse 46. It says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, do not even the tax collectors, the slimy tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the, those pagan people that we don't want to be like, do, don't they do the same? That's what he's saying there. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the word perfect here doesn't mean uh, necessarily no mistakes. It, it, it can kind of mean that, but it, it really would be almost better translated as the word mature. Someone who has reached a fullness of completion in their development in their ability to love. There's a promise in there as well. For when we choose to intentionally act in the opposite spirit of our enemy, when we give kindness or generosity to someone who treats us wrong, who despises us, and we even despise them, when we love them anyway, something shifts in us and in our world. To do this can, can, can go against every part of our being. And yet Jesus is saying, when you choose to cross that line, you choose, you choose to be close to God in that moment. When you cross that line, you step into a mature, full, perfect love, a God kind of love in that moment. And that's what changes all of us. I think John understood this point really well when he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, and whoever loves knows God. See, when we love like this and we choose to act differently, we participate in the very essence of who God is. And heaven invades earth through us in that moment. Jesus drops this mountaintop teaching in our laps and says, this is the hardest thing you will ever do, but it's the best thing you can ever do. When we live like this, things happen. Things shift and change in us and others. And I would say this has been probably hard. I mean, our marriage, this is not easy to do, right? Like, um, and I know that some of us might just struggle with what this command looks like to love our enemy. And, you know, what does it mean? Like, what kind of boundaries can we have when we've had people that have done harm to us? I wrestle with this passage of loving our enemies, especially when it comes to anyone who's been abused physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And I think we get a little more clarity on what loving our enemy looks like when Jesus teaches us all on how to pray. And that's the same sermon on the Lord's Prayer. When he says, Father, forgive us, for we also forgive those who owe us, those who have done us wrong, those who have been our enemy. Now, the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about doesn't brush things under the rug. It doesn't ignore or condone wrongs that are done. Forgiveness is not saying that this is not a big deal. Forgiveness is saying, and it's fully naming and drawing attention to the wrong that's been done. And it names it for what it is. It was horribly wrong. It was stupid. It was selfish. It was evil. Forgiveness is not about eliminating consequences for what people do. The Roman soldier who humiliated you, the tax collector who cheated you, they're going to experience consequences, but we are not the ones to have to make sure it happens and, and the way that we want it to happen. Because we choose to let God be the judge. 
And what I hope is clear in these passages is that God is not asking you to stay with an abuser or to say to yourself, like, I should have just tried harder or prayed harder to make them change. The entirety of Scripture talks about God as being our protector and our defender and our deliverer. What happened to you was wrong, and you are not to be a doormat. Jesus was assertive. He was assertive in his love, and that love had boundaries. And he wants us to have them too. And I, but I think the main point I believe Jesus is wanting to make is to understand that this prayer is forgiveness, is giving up the right to retaliate and to re- take revenge. And we give up that right because this person still bears the image of God, no matter how messed up they are. So you may choose to never be alone with that person again, um, but you can come to a place where you can lift them in prayer to God and then let go. So this kind of loving our enemy, it feels vulnerable, doesn't it? Um, It's vulnerable yet incredibly brave. And it is a central part of living in his kingdom. Because when we practice giving forgiveness, giving grace to other people, it is a big sign that the grace of God has really sunk deep into our hearts and our minds. You know, and I know when I've been really hurt, um, I often just take way too long to do this. But, you know, you sit down and you try and you take that person that you're frustrated with and you and that you're hurt with and you sit with them. And I, I try to talk out my heart to God. And but I can tell that in that moment when you are starting to try to trying to pray the opposite of what you've experienced in them, something shifts inside. You know, it can take me a few visits with God to do this, um, but eventually something lifts. I feel differently. I feel lighter. I don't know why I wait so long to do it, but um, that sitting with it is important. Can you do it faster when I'm the yeah, one you're well, frustrated with? you're my most difficult case, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Sorry. I've been reading about disciples and how they lived as a result of being with Jesus. And what we see in their lives, uh, that their lives made tremendously deep, historic, significant impacts. Why? Because they got this kind of Mount St. Helens explosive truth of love your enemy. See the price tag God put on each person and because of it, even if they're the one persecuting you in this moment, these followers were willing to give their lives and experience a fate similar to Jesus as a way of loving even in those moments. So who comes to mind for you as someone who lived Jesus' teachings of loving our enemy, maybe in more recent times? For me, one of the big ones that comes to mind is Martin Luther King Jr. stands out. Many of his speeches, like the letters he wrote from the Birmingham jail, had him communicating to a wider audience. And so you don't always hear him talk about Jesus in those letters. But uh, And I know he wasn't perfect, and yet, uh, yet I'm reminded of the time that MLK come out of, came out of his house when someone had just burned a cross in his front yard. King's response was to go back into his house, get a suit on, come back out, return to the cross, pick it up, and then he immediately prayed that God would show favor and bless the people who had done this to him. This is the love that drove this man. He did not strive for retaliation. He knew retaliation would only bring more violence and hatred. And isn't that what we're seeing in our culture today? He said this, he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And he went on later and said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. 
Martin Luther King Jr. saturated himself in Jesus' teachings, and in particular, this teaching we're talking about today, which came and and totally affected his life choices and empowered the change he brought in our world that he he made such a dramatic impact. What what a role model. What, wow. Well, we want to end today with communion. You know, it's been a long time since we've gotten to do this together, um, online or in person. So there is no pressure to take the elements, you know. If you don't have them, you can just imagine having the cup and the bread in your hand. Now, the cup and the bread, they represent what we've been talking about today. Jesus was the human that I was called to be, but I failed to do so. Jesus is the one who gave his life as an act of love and turned me, who was an enemy, into his friend. Jesus blazed this path for us. And it's by his grace and his strength that we get to walk this path of love out. So as you take this bread and this cup, I would like for you to think of someone that you find difficult to be around. Now, it could be your spouse, and I'm saying I probably am the more difficult one in this relationship for sure. Um, But it could be your spouse. It could be your coworker, somebody on Facebook. It could be anyone. I mean, you just really don't like them. You can't stand them. They may not really like you. And I want you to get that person in mind. It may be the person that you have those arguments, you know, that you have in your head. Someone who's done you wrong, who's made some harmful comments about you, assumed some false things about you, or rejected you. And I want you to take this first step of what Jesus is asking. I want you to take this bread and this cup in your hand. And I want you to take that first step toward them and pray for them. Now, I don't want you to pray like God changed their mind, help them to see the error other ways kind of prayer. I want you to pray for God to bless them in their health, in their finances, that their gifts and their talents would be used for meaningful purposes, for good. I want you to pray for their children, that their children would know God and follow God all the days of their life. So I'd like us just to take this moment and pray for them. Lord, bless them. Lord, keep them. Shape them. Let your favor shine upon them. Lord, bless them, Lord. So I want you to hold the bread. If you can hold the bread. If you can get it out. These things are tricky. And they're really hard to get during COVID. Remind yourself of Jesus' body that's beaten and broken for you. And to receive the blood of the body of Christ now. And I want you to hold the cup. This is representative of, of Jesus' blood shed for you. And I want you to drink it and receive the truth of all of the love that God has for you. That he has put an incredible price tag on you. He loves you that much. Receive. Would you join me in prayer? 
Jesus, thank you that you value us so much that even when we're rebelling against you, you came and you died for us to get us away, to be free. You love us that much that, Lord, you touch every dividing wall that is between us, between other people. Every harmful thing we think about us ourselves, even you say, no, I, I see you different. I see you as one created in my image. Lord, you are so gracious, so kind, so good. Would you just transform our lives that we can love like you love. That we can know the strength and the joy and the power of loving even our enemies and seeing them become friends because of your salvation, because of your presence working through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and join in worship? We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.